0: Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read from verses 10 down to verse... Let's get down to the end, verse 24. This is the word of God, and it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's again ask for God's help this morning. Loving Father, again as we come before you, with the word of God open before us, Father, we pray that you would speak and that we would hear. Father, we pray that you would strengthen those whose knees and whose hands and elbows are failing under the load. Father, help us to help them. Father, through the speaking of the word of God, we pray that you would awaken those who do not know you to true faith and repentance of sin. That we might know the Savior. Father, we pray that you would do a great work here this morning, that the Spirit of God would be poured out, that those who don't know would know, and those who do know would be encouraged and built up and strengthened in their faith. In their faith. May our faith be deeper. Father, may our love be greater. And Father, may our joy be sweeter this morning. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The message in a nutshell again is simply this. God has given us his full armor of truth so that in his strength we may have sufficient to endure to Satan's schemes. We must clothe ourselves in it and stand firm against the devil's devices. Now we said a few weeks ago to give you the context that we need to prepare to endure the devil's devices because the devil is a liar. He is a deceiver and a discourager. The devil is unrelenting in using his schemes to attempt to turn us away from following Christ. We have a purpose in preparing. Our purpose is to endure in the evil day. In order to endure, we must obey God's commands. His commands are this. To be strengthened in the Lord, to cry out in prayer for God's strength, to put on and take up the full armor of God, to clothe ourselves in Christ's truth, which means putting it on, memorizing, reading, and meditating on it, and also, most importantly, applying the truth of Christ to ourselves. We must, fourthly, clothe ourselves in Christ's righteousness, wrapping it like a breastplate around our chest and our back which would defend us against God's anger and God's wrath, but also against the devil's devices and schemes. We must fasten to our feet, we saw last week, the assurance given by the gospel of peace. This great assurance that God cannot undo the saving and atoning work of Christ on the cross. God cannot unadopt us. He cannot unaccept us. We are absolutely secure in him. And now this week we are going to look up at taking up the shield of faith. Now if you remember the pictures you've probably seen of Roman soldiers going into battle, they had these great shields. They were usually about four, three foot six high or um, a meter and a bit. I'm not sure what that is in Aussie speak. If that's so high and it would be basically shaped like a tin can that had been cut lengthways. So it was curved across the front but rectangular in its length, its height. And what it was done, it was made up out of pieces of wood that were cut and joined together to create that curved shape. And then they would wrap the piece of wood in thick leather or possibly canvas. But what they would do before they went into battle is they would take that shield and they would dip it in water and soak it in water which means it would be very heavy. But what it would do is, as the enemy soldiers and the enemy archers would dip their arrows in pitch and then light them on fire, and as they would stretch the arrow or the bow and fire the arrow toward the enemy soldiers, the Roman soldier would lift up that shield and the arrow would strike that wet, sodden shield of leather and wood and it would extinguish the flame in that arrow. Now, apparently, firing... Fiery arrows into the enemy or the Roman phalanx, if the arrows got in there and caught fire, it would cause chaos chaos and panic among the soldiers. And what they would all do is they would all shy away from that burning arrow. And you can see what would happen, right? As it gets fired into the middle of the soldiers, they would begin to fracture and break up. And that phalanx of tightly bound up men in armor, all walking in formation, would begin to shatter and crumble. And so every soldier taking up the shield of faith, as it were, and standing tightly together and lifting up that shield of faith was so important to keep that church of men together. The, idea, the word church, by the way, just means a gathering, a group of people. So soldiers or whatever you want to call them, they're all tightly together. And what that brings up to us and reminds us of is this, that we as a church As God's people, both individuals and as a body together, all of us, bar none, need to pick up and take up that shield of faith and exercise faith together, both as a body and both and as individuals. Now, I want you to notice something. If you know your Old Testament a little bit, you'll probably have heard that God is described repeatedly in the Old Testament as a shield to his people. In uh, Genesis fifteen one, God says to Abram, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now, want you notice in that verse, the connection between shield and reward, I am your shield, your reward will be great. There's a connection there that's very important. In Psalm 5 and verse 12. The psalmist writes, for you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. God's grace is seen by the psalmist as a shield to his people. In Psalm 18 and verse 2, the psalmist again writes, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn or my strength of my salvation, my stronghold. Notice again, there's a connection there between taking refuge in God, which requires faith and God being our shield. So this faith and the shield idea there go hand to get, hand in hand. They fit together. Okay. Psalm 28 verse seven, the Bible says this. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. Okay? God is the object of his faith. God is the one in whom he trusts. And God in whom he trusts is a shield about him to protect him. So the message for today is this. Christian, take up the shield of faith. The text reads literally, take up the shield, comma, that is faith. So take up that shield of faith, Christian, and we need to stand together against the enemy's devices. Well, what is the nature of faith? What does faith mean? Faith is trusting in God who is able to keep his promises. If you spend any time with me, you'll spend you'll hear this verse come up over and over again. It's my favorite explanation of faith in the Bible. It's Romans 4, verses 20 to 25. You take your Bibles and let's turn over there together and read it together from the Bible. By the way, I give you those little note sheets uh, in the bulletin there. You are strongly encouraged to go home, sit down with that note sheet, get your Bible out, look up all the verses. Make sure I didn't twist the verse to say something it doesn't say. Check me out, okay? This is the authority, not this. All right, so check it out. So this is Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 25. Actually, I'm going to read from verse 19 to 25. It says this, Romans 4, "...he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God." Fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. That is why His faith was counted to Him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to Him were not written for His sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us. Who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. He was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. That line, verse 21, the short verse there. Fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. That's faith. God is our shield. God is the object of our faith. Faith values God as omnipotently able to keep his promises. By the way, believing that God is able to keep his promises is not the same as believing God will keep his promises. I see a few of you smiling and nodding. The Old Testament saints, they believe that God was able to keep their pro- his promises. Some of them never experienced the realization of those promises. They were made, and they believed that God was able, and they died not having seen God keep it. But they were still convinced that God is able to keep his promises, which means God may make a promise to us as a church. Like, think about it. All the history of the years of the church, how long have we been waiting for Christ to come back? 2,000 odd years, right? Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Yeah, amen, he's coming back. Hopefully before I have to finish this sermon, that he's coming back. No, I'm only kidding about that. But you know, he's coming back, and we've been believing that for 2,000 years. Does that mean because he didn't come in their lifetime that they lost their faith? No, they believed that God was able to keep that promise even though they never saw it in their own day. And faith is trusting in God who is able to keep his promises. Faith is being convinced of the fulfillment of those promises. Faith is the conviction that God's promises, which we cannot yet see, are real, are true, and are ours in Christ Jesus. God's promises are truly ours as God's gift. Take your Bibles now. Flip over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. You knew we were going to go there because this is the great text on faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1, and then we'll read verse 6, and we'll just skip over 2, 3, 4, and 5. Hebrews 11, verse 1, the Bible says, Now faith is the assurance, or the conviction of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Then verse 6 He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that God is or he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is being convinced of the fulfillment of those promises. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We're going to look at the story of Abraham in just a minute when God calls him out of Ur the Chaldees and he says, come out of Ur the Chaldees and go to a land that I will show you. He couldn't see the land yet. He had to believe God would keep that promise for him. Faith is evidenced by our obedience to God's commands, which are attached to God's promises. You got to get this. This is so key to the message and to understanding what faith really is. Faith is trusting God who is able to keep his promises and faith is obedience to the commands that are attached to the promises. All right? Take your Bibles. Go to James chapter 2. Hebrews and then James. It's a couple pages over. James chapter 2. We're going to read verse 14 and then 18 to 22. James 2 and verse 14, the Bible says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It literally means, can that sort of faith save him? Then verses 18 to 22. The Bible says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And then verse number 24. Actually, let's read this to the end. Uh, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith is trusting in God. And displaying that trust by obeying God's commands in the belief and conviction that God is able to keep his promises. I'm going to read that again because I want you to get this. I want us all to get it. Faith is trusting in God and displaying that trust by obeying God's commands in the belief and conviction that God is able to keep his promises. That Those two go together you got to get this. Faith and obedience, they both go together. You cannot separate them, but you must get them in the right order. And I'm going to keep repeating this throughout the message. It's faith in God, trusting God to keep His promises, and obedience that flows out of that faith. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, is a man, Carl uh, would know him, uh, know of him. He was a man who was killed, I would say martyred for his faith, during the, the very end of World War II. He was a great theologian and a pastor in Germany, and he wrote a great book called uh, Discipleship, True Discipleship, I believe it's called. And he said this, he said, By faith we obey, and in obedience we believe. And he said, you cannot divorce the two. And I'm going to say the same thing. You cannot divorce the two. Faith and obedience go tightly fitted together. Well, that's what faith is. But what's it look like? And, of course, you know, the greatest example of faith in the Bible is, in fact, the book of Abram. Or not the book of Abram. I'm reading the Bible. It's the book of Genesis and the life of Abram. So take your Bibles and flip all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 12. We want to look at this great illustration of faith and everything we've been saying up to now is described and displayed in these verses. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. What does faith in action look like? Here we go. And the Bible says in Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram rent as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. I want you to notice the command that God gives Abram. Verse number one, go from your country to a land I will show you. Abraham had to trust God that such a land existed. Now notice all the promises that God attaches to those that command to give him. He attaches promises to the command. Verses two and three, I will show you the land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And then the very end there, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And all those promises, the New Testament tells us, are clearly fulfilled in Christ. But notice the conviction of Abraham. Abram here. He does this. He packs up Mrs. Abraham and convinces her to move house without knowing where they're going. And a few of you ladies are smiling. You know what that means, right? Ladies, moms, you're great. You love to know exactly where you're going next. And you love to know where everything's going to be set up and put up. And Abram comes home from work and he says, Sarah, the Lord has called me to go and we're going to move. Where to? I don't know. Which way? Not sure. How will we know when we get there? We'll find out when we get there. Abram? Yes, Sarah, have you been smoking something funny? No, Sarah. God has appeared to me, and I'm convinced that this is what God is calling us to do. And Sarah says, okay. And they pack up their stuff on the mules and the donkeys and all the rest of it, and their neighbors are wondering what's happening. The house is up for sale, and they're leaving. Where are you going? Not sure. That's faith. And he was convinced by what God had told him. That God would keep his promises and he packs up and he leaves and He say, man, that's a great amount of faith. And Abram starts to look forward to the fulfillment of the promises. He's going to have a son and 25 years go by and no son exists. No son comes along. How long do you wait and pray for something and we wait for what? A day, three days, a month, maybe six months? And, oh, God doesn't care. well, you know, I've been waiting. I've been praying. I've been really pouring in minutes a day on these prayers. And God's not waiting. You know he said in Romans 4? He did not grow weak in his faith. In other words, he saw Sarai's body as she's getting older and older. And she's now long beyond the natural years of childbirth. He looks at his own body as good as dead. He's getting older and older. He trust. he's absolutely convinced that God would keep his promises. Later on in Genesis 22, you know the story. God comes to Abram in the night and says, Abram, get up in the morning. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. First mention the Bible of love between a father and a son. That's very striking. Take him to land of Moriah. And Abram's thinking, I oh, wonder what we're going to do there. Maybe we're going to go hunting. Maybe we're going to do this. Maybe. Take him up the top of a mountain. Maybe we'll see some great sights. Maybe we'll do this. And there I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. (coughs) Hello? And Abram is absolutely convinced. The God who was able to keep his promises and a body as good as dead could produce a son. After 25 years of waiting, got up early in the morning, packed up the donkey, put the wood on top of the kid, grabbed the fire and the knife and the servants and off they head down the road. Three days journey and they look up and they can see the land of Moriah far off in the distance. And Abram goes straight towards it. You know why? Because he is convinced that God was able not only to keep the first promise about having a son, he was convinced that he would keep the rest of the promises, which would be a nation, a great nation, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he said, God is more valuable to me than what it looks like here, that I'm going to lose my son, and it's too late for a second one. God's promises are sure. God himself can be trusted, and Abram trusted in God. And you know the story. God waited until the the knife was lifted to, to put down into his chest, and God says, stop. And the beautiful picture there of a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, it displays to us the beauty of Christ who was taken and offered up in Isaac's place. And Isaac came down that mountain. You can't tell me he wasn't radically changed by what he had been through. They both knew the power of God. Hebrews 11, all through, if you read those stories. By faith, Enoch walked. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abram left. By faith, they obeyed over and over again. All those examples go together. Faith is, like we said a few minutes ago, I'm going to read it again. As soon as I find it, faith is trusting in God and displaying that trust by obeying God's commands in the belief and conviction that God is able to keep his promises. Well, that's the nature of faith and that's what it looks like. But what about us? What are some of God's commands and promises to us? This isn't historic. It's not just a story we read about and go, wow, what a great story about faith in God. This is for us to practice and live out this day in this world here and now. So let me ask you a question. What are you trusting God for? And I'm going to add a little little parenthesis there. Aside from your salvation, what are you trusting in God for? This is not a moment of faith followed by a life of just living the same as everybody else and going to heaven at the end. That is not Christianity. It's not in the Bible and it's not here. Real Christianity is a life of ongoing continual faith and obedience to God. Abram lived his entire life by faith in God. Paul lived his entire life by faith in God. David lived his entire life by faith in God. And you and I, as God's people in this day and age, are called to live our lives by faith in God. Paul is saying in Ephesians 6, Take up the shield, that is faith, that you may be able to quench the darts of the evil one. So my question to you this morning is, what are you trusting God for? Well, I want to show you some of the commands and promises that God has given to us. And you see from that note, there's about 11 of them. I stopped at 11 different commands and promises. I could have gone on for quite a bit longer. And then this sermon would have been way longer than it already is. But here we go. Before I do that, I want to do two things. I want to make two words of warning. Okay, There is a great, great danger in this message already. Some of you would have picked it up. The rest of you want to show you. The danger is that we separate faith and obedience. I made it quite clear you can't do that. That's Abraham's example. The other danger is this. Do not make the equally massive mistake of thinking we obtain the promises of of God by works of obedience. That's the danger. And a few of you are nodding. You, you, you picked that up already. Don't make that mistake. Abraham got God's promises because he followed. Yeah, he did, but he followed in faith. Abraham got God's promises because he took Isaac up a hill and he was ready to sacrifice him on an altar. And some of you are thinking, I can take my kids up an altar tomorrow and sacrifice them to see if my faith is real. No, you can't do that. It's not the obedience. It's faith first. Followed by works of obedience. We are saved by faith to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, right? So the, you have to get that in the right order. If you get it in the wrong order, what happens? No salvation. That's what happens. If you get in the wrong order the other way and you separate two and say, I'm saved by faith, I can live any way I like, guess what else happens? No salvation. Because the Bible does not countenance and does not consider genuine salvation to be living by faith and forget the obedience that go together. But you have to have them in the right order. It must be faith first and it must be followed by obedience. They're linked together, but don't get them mistaken in order. Okay, Absolutely crucial. So what are some of God's commands and promises for us today to trust and obey God for? Ezekiel 18 verses 30 to 32. The Bible says this. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. That was God's call to the people of Israel in Ezekiel's day. But it's the same call for us today. God commands us to repent of sin, and He attaches it to a promise that we will live. Repent and you will live. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know where you're at in your own spiritual walk before the Lord, but know this, Ezekiel said it. Jesus repeated it in Luke 13, verse 5. Without repentance, we will perish. Repent and you will live. Secondly, Acts 10 verse 43, the Bible says this. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God commands us to believe and he attaches to that command his promise of the forgiveness of sins. Brother and sister. Those of you who do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you want to know what it means and what it's like to have forgiveness of sin? I don't know about you, but when sin takes a hold, there is a feeling of dirty, greasiness that I just hate. But when I cry out to God for forgiveness, and the feeling of being clean in His presence is something overwhelming. There is a peace and there is a joy that comes in forgiveness. And in Acts 10, and I believe it's Peter's speaking, says this, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. God commands us to believe and He attaches to that command, the promise of forgiveness of sins. Thirdly, John three sixteen to 18 These are verses you probably well know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. God commands us to believe. He commands us to trust And his promise attached to it is that we will have eternal life. Listen, that eternal life does not start the moment you die and go beyond that. That eternal life starts the very moment you trust in Jesus Christ and begin to live in faith and repentance. It's a life that goes on forever now. We have it now. We'll have it for all of eternity. And one day death will be like walking through a door. We'll leave behind the world that we can see and touch and taste and all the rest of it, and we will step into the presence of God. But the life that we have now will carry right on through. You want to have that eternal life? Believe. The command is to believe. The promise is you'll have eternal life. But God also makes the flip side very clear. God also warns us, if we do not believe, we are already condemned. That means the sentence is passed. The death warrant is written and signed. And one day the executioner will come and we will be cast out of darkness. That's already made. But if you believe you will have eternal life. Faith is trusting God and obeying his commands, heeding his warnings, and knowing that he's able to keep his promises. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe as prophets, and you will succeed. God commands us to believe, and he attaches to that command another promise that He will establish us. The assurance of faith we talked about last week, that's exactly what He's talking about. You will have the absolute assurance of knowing nothing can knock you over, nothing can push you away. You will be solidly fixed to the rock which is Christ. Faith is trusting God, knowing He's able to keep every promise. Mark uh, 13, verse 13, and You will be hated by all men for My name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's not the greatest advertising campaign for the gospel, by the way. Everybody's going to hate you. But if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. You know what? It's the absolute reality of the gospel. People do not like being told they're sinners. People do not like being told that God is going to judge. People do not like being told... But the Bible holds great promise and great threat of great wrath at the same time. But that is the promise that's there. But he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, following Christ. We just sang a few minutes ago, the world behind me, the cross before me. That's an easy word just to sing. It's got a nice catchy tune. You can just sing it and repeat the words and off you go. Do you believe it? we're willing to say, world behind. I want nothing more to do with the world. I'll put the cross up in front of me and I will follow that. And that cross does not just mean a nice little piece of necklace or a nice thing up on the side of a building or a nice emblem on your business card like mine has. A cross means the idea of suffering for Christ, going where he leads, enduring the heat and the hatred of men because they don't like your message. But the promise is we'll have eternal life. In First John number six, first John 2:24, let's what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. God commands us to let His word abide in us. Let this word, as you pick it up day by day, as you read it and you study it and you memorize it, let it have its work. As you soak it up, it will have a tremendous influence on your life. It will highlight sin to you, but it will highlight the glory of God to you as well. It will highlight your failings and your needs, but it will also highlight the strength of God that's able to get you through. It will show you how to live for God, how to follow Christ, how to walk with him, how to trust in him, and how to have unbounding joy in him. But that word's got to abide in you. And Jesus said, let my word abide in you. Or sorry, John was quoting, I think, Jesus saying that. God commands us to let his word abide in us. He commands us to abide in Christ. And he attaches to it that same promise again. You will have eternal life. You will have, the idea of life here is an existence. It's not bios, right? That's the Greek for, you know, just life. Well, no, not those plants, they're they're dead. I was going to use them as an example, but that would be the perfect not example It's not like the trees out front there. You say they're alive. Yeah, they're growing, they're movement, you know, and fresh leaves and all that. They're alive. This is not that kind of life. It's the word zoe in Greek, and it means the essence of life. Real life, true life, to be truly alive and connected to the Father, to be truly alive and experience all God designed us to experience and enjoy as we are truly alive. He commands us to abide in Him and abide in Christ, and He promises you will have the absolute essence of life unending. Luke ten, twenty seven to twenty-eight. He answered, this is Jesus, and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Then Romans 8.28 says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God commands us to love him. Why? Because he is of the highest value. If you want to know more about that, night, come back tonight. We'll talk about this and why we love God, why the command is to love God. God commands us to love him. And for those who love him, God attaches two promises. We will live and that all things will work together for our good. I've heard so many people take that verse, "All things work together for good," unbelievers take it and go, "Oh yeah, you know everything's working together for our good." I'm like, no, no, that is not what it means because you miss the context. For those who love God, all things, like what all things, like cancer, like death, like disease, like job loss, like relationships of breakdown. down. Like all the positive things too. I mentioned all those negative ones for a reason. God is working all those things together for our good. For those who love God. But not for those who don't love God. doesn't work the same. That connection is there. And the command to love God comes attached to so many rich promises that we can hold on to God. We can trust Him that He's able to keep them. I'm going to skip last three, even though I'd love to do it. So go home, take the last three, eight, nine, ten, eleven there, or four, and look them up for yourself. And you can see what the promise and the command is in each one of those things. I'm going to repeat the word of caution I gave at the beginning of this. Do not separate faith in God from obedience to God. Don't make that mistake. Don't rearrange the order. That's absolutely crucial. First, we trust the Lord who is able to keep those promises. And secondly, we obey the Lord's commands that he attaches to those promises. But here's the question that you should be silently shouting back at me from your seat. You can shout out loud if you want to. How does faith in God and obedience to his commands shield me from the enemy's darts? I mean, let's face it. Meanwhile, back in Ephesians chapter 6, that was our text. Now, I've taken a long detour to talk about what faith is, but now we've got to answer the question. He says in chapter 6, in verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Notice what context? All circumstances what what about the ones that can handle those ones too what about the, the little silly things in those ones too he says in all circumstances he doesn't say in some he doesn't say when well, you know when things get really hard and you just you just can't handle it anymore pick up that shield of faith and it'll get you through No, he says in all circumstances, in every part of your life, whether you're working or sleeping or eating or relationships with your family, relationships with your work, relationships with your friends, in the context of a church, outside the church, in mission, whatever it is, in every single circumstance that we face in life, he says, take up that shield that is faith. So the question is, How does faith in God and obedience to his commands shield me from the enemy's darts? What does it look like to actually hold up that shield of faith? Remember we read earlier, Hebrews 11 verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is or he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith shields us from the devil's fiery darts in three ways. You got them on your note sheet there. Number one, by considering God Himself as infinitely more valuable than any other person or being, including the devil. Okay? The very beginning of this message, remember what we said? Old Testament statements about God, He said that God is our shield. God is the object of our faith. The writer of Hebrews says, we come to God when we must believe that He is. So He is the object of our faith. It's not my strength. It's not my money. It's not my health. It's not my job. Those aren't the objects of my faith. It is God. And God is the object of our faith. Faith shields us from the enemy's darts by considering God as infinitely more valuable than any other. God is the object of our faith. We're called to trust and obey him. I trust in God and I obey his commands and knowing and seeing and enjoying God for now and all eternity is infinitely better than the temporary trivial pleasures of sin. I'd rather have God than sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage. I'd rather have God than stolen money. I'd rather have God than anything lying can achieve for me. I would rather have God and lose everything else and still have God. So faith shields us from the devil's fiery darts by saying, God is more valuable to me than anything else in the world. I am trusting in Him. The enemy can take my life, can beat me up, cut off my fingers, whatever he wants to do. But he cannot take from me my faith in God. He cannot take from me God Himself. So faith shields us from the task by holding up, if you like, the shield of faith before our eyes. And that shield... Is God, and it says, God is more valuable to me than anything that you can offer me. Remember Jesus? <laughs> Why not? I mean, he's our Lord and Savior. Remember him and his temptation? The devil said, Here they are, all the kingdoms of the world. I'll show them to you in a split second. Look at, there they are, all the glory, all the wealth, all the riches, all the power, all the honor. You can have it if you do one thing, bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, No. I mean, Jesus already knew that the kingdoms of the world were his anyway. Number two, he also knew in order to accomplish his goal, he would have to go to the heights of suffering, unlike anything any human will ever understand, in order to finish God's work and God's plan. But he said, God and God's work and God's plan are more valuable to me than the kingdoms of the world that you can throw at me that you cannot keep and I will not be able to keep either. You get it? Faith shields us from the enemy's darts by considering God himself as infinitely more valuable than anything else that we can have or own or enjoy. Secondly, faith shields us from the fiery darts by considering the value of God's promises as exceedingly greater than what the devil, the flesh, or the world can offer us. Here's where the, look, notice the phrase in Hebrews eleven six. he says, those who would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. There is a reward for faith. Absolutely. We've been talking about eternal life, all those other things he promises. So, Faith shields us from the fiery darts by considering the value of God's promises as exceedingly greater than what the devil, the flesh, or the world can offer. So forgiveness of sin is exceedingly better than fornication. That's what I hold up. I'd rather have forgiveness than any less sex. Eternal life is infinitely better than living out my lusts. Christ's abiding presence is so much better than porn. Christ's abiding presence is so much better than everything else. And the devil waves a little temptation in front of you. Oh, look, here it is. Come on. Follow it. And you go, you know what? I'd rather have the promises of God than have that. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's so easy to stand here and preach this. It's easy or or maybe a little bit less easy to sit and listen to it. It's a whole lot different when the devil waves it in front of your eyes and he doesn't do it with a little warning sign. Warning, you're about to be tempted. Here you go. He does it by waving in our eyes sometimes so subtly and so deceptively. And before we know it, we turn to reach out for it, not realizing that when we reach out for that thing, we're reaching away from God. But faith shields us from the fiery darts by considering the value of God's promises as exceedingly greater than what the devil, the flesh, or the world can offer. one last thing, faith shields us from the devil's fiery darts by despising the necessary suffering to obtain God's promises. Suffering for Christ is exceedingly better than the comfort and ease we could have without Christ. I think I told you the story about one of the martyrs in uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. A woman in one of the Roman cities was caught. caught. She was a Christian. And she had, I believe, six or seven children. And the authorities brought her in. They had a huge iron plate in front of her. And they heated the iron plate up with fire. And they said, renounce Christ. And she said, never, I will not renounce my Savior. They took one of her children. They threw him on the fire, on the plate. Renounce Christ or he'll roast. And she said no. And took another child and they threw him on. And they kept going. In the end, the suffering that she endured of watching her poor children die, that horrifying death, she would not renounce. In the end, of you know what happened. Of course, she was martyred also. It's easy to tell a story like that. What happens when we're in a room and someone says, Renounce Christ or you'll pay. On the way down here this morning, just thinking through this point, I began to cry out to God and plead with God that when that day comes that my faith will stand. That our faith will stand. That we will pick up the shield of faith and I will be like Christ and I will despise the suffering for the joy that was set before Him. That we would follow Christ. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. That woman said, the world behind me, the cross before me, my children's suffering I will despise for the joy of knowing Christ my Savior. The The faith shields us from the fiery darts of the devil by despising necessary suffering to obtain God's promises The martyrs said something like this, It's better to endure an hour in the flames of the stake than eternity in the flames of hell. And they went to the stake gladly, knowing where they were going beyond that hour. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how does faith shield us from the enemy's darts? It's trusting in God who is able to keep his promises. It's obedience to the commands that God gives us. It's valuing God as infinitely more valuable than any other person being in existence. It's considering the value of God's promise is exceedingly greater than anything the devil, the flesh, and the world can throw at us. And it's despising the necessary suffering. And the only way you're going to do it goes back to the very first command. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. That's why it came first. We cry out, we plead with God every day, give me the strength to endure. When the devil comes, give me the strength to endure. When all the temptations and oppositions come and try and push me off of following Christ, give me the strength to endure. Father, let me value Christ more than any other. Let me value His promises more than the Garbage the world can give me for a moment. And I pray, God, please, Lord, let me endure when the day of suffering comes to despise it compared to the infinite excellency of knowing Jesus, my Lord. I'm going to close with a verse and then we'll sing the, we'll pray and sing the benediction. 1 Peter 5 8 and 9 says this Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Come on, noble part. Let's stand together. Let's endure together. Let's link arms wrapping ourselves in truth, the breastplate of righteousness fastened around our chests that protects us, taking up each of us that shield of faith and holding it up before us, that when the arrows of the enemy begin to fly in amongst us, that we can get close enough together that this shield protects not just myself, but it also helps protect those who are around me. We can do this when we stand together. We can do it because God will give us the strength. We can do it because he's given us his word to abide in us. We can do this because he has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us to do it. Let's obey the commands in the faith that God is able to keep his promises. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll sing together. Loving Father, we come before you again this morning, O God, and we just cry out to you, we plead with you, O God, that our faith would stand firm, that our faith would be fueled and fed as we abide in your word and Christ abides in us and we abide in Christ. Father, help us to take those great examples from Scripture and, and apply them to ourselves, to look at Abraham who lifted up his eyes and fastened them on you, who did not grow weak in his faith, but grew stronger as he glorified God. Father, we cry out to you that you would give us more faith, that you would strengthen and deepen that faith that we have like a muscle that is limber and strong. Father, keep us ever dependent on you, trusting in you and you alone. But Father, help us also to live out what we are called to live, repentance and faith, obedience to your commands. Father, the world behind us, the cross before us. Father, I plead with you to help us. Help each person in this room who knows you truly as their Savior to value you far above every person and every other being in existence, far above all the trash that the world has to try and lure us away, to value the promises that you have made, that you promised to reward us with, as infinitely greater than all the junk we can have for a moment. Father, the the line about Moses comes to mind. He thought little of the riches of Egypt compared to the reproach of Christ. He knew what it was to abandon wealth, position, prestige, and honor, to follow you and live a life of a servant leading your people. Father God, I plead with you, I cry out to you, O God, that we would all, each of us, look at the junk the world is throwing at us, to realize what it is for its its true nature and instead to value Christ above all. And Father, again I cry out to you thinking about suffering. Father, I hear story after story after story of men and women throughout history who trust you, trusted you, and despised the suffering of a few hours knowing that eternity in your presence, eternity enjoying the pleasures of God forevermore, was exceedingly more valuable. And so they despised the suffering that was necessary to get there. Father, help us. I plead with you, O God, for this church, that when real suffering hits us, that we would despise it compared to, to the infinite excellencies of knowing Jesus our Savior. Give us the strength to endure. Father, help us, like the picture of those Roman soldiers in the phalanx as they marched out to battle, tightly together, linked arms, shields held up, shields over top, swords fastened into their hands, their their feet booted. Our feet booted with the assurance that comes from knowing the gospel of peace. We cannot be knocked off of following Christ. Father, help us as a church to grow stronger in our bonds of love one for the other. To stand tightly together. Father, we pray for a revival in this church again. Father, a deepening of the love we have for you. Make it richer, make it greater. Father, also the love we have one for the other. Father, let us do everything we can to love, and having done all, to love exceedingly and deeply. Father, we ask you these things. Lord, we need help in so much of it. I need help, Father. And I'm pleading for it that you'll help me as much as you'll help everybody else in this room. Father, we ask you these things, and we plead for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.